Father, your word says that there is no other name that has been given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there's no one else who went to a cross and bore our sins in our place. There's no one else who, after doing that, said it is finished, declaring that the debt had been paid in full. There's no one else who came and lived a sinless life in our place, accomplishing a right standing for us. Lord, there's no one else that we can put our trust in and put our hope in, Lord. So we pray that more and more every day that any rivals that are in our hearts to our Lord Jesus, that they would be evicted from our hearts, turned away from, repented of, that we would be having eyes for Christ alone, that, that we would truly know him as the bread of life, Lord, the only one who can sustain us and satisfy us and complete us and rescue us for all eternity. And Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish that even today, Lord, um, as we come to your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. And I'll go ahead and I'll read that for us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to prudent people. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things with which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Several years ago, I was given an assignment for a college course that I was taking at SUNY ESF. And I forget the name of the class, but it had something to do with cultural development. And we were required to attend the worship service of a different religion from our own. And I chose to go to a Roman Catholic service. And at the time, I understood Roman Catholicism to be a different religion than true Christianity, and I still affirm that. They preach a different gospel, one in which you must perform good works in order to maintain your justification before God. Not only that, but you must suffer for your sins in purgatory after you die. They preach a different gospel. They preach a different Christ, one who did not do enough on the cross to save us because we have to make up for what he failed to do by doing our own works and suffering for ourselves in purgatory. Thus, it is a different religion, a false religion, with a false gospel that leads people to hell. 
But I went to this service, and this, at the service I attended, they served their version of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And instead of hanging back, I went up and I received the Eucharist. I said to myself that though I don't subscribe to their gospel and I don't subscribe to their Christ, I'm going to eat this meal with the intention of honoring the true Christ and testifying to the true gospel in my heart. And I left that service untroubled by what I had done. And it was some years later that I came across the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And the Lord gently revealed to me that I had sinned that day when I went up and I partook of that Eucharist. Instead of communing with and worshiping Christ that day, which was what I was intending to do, this passage tells me that I communed with and I worshiped demons. Demons who were propagating a false gospel. Instead of testifying to the true gospel, my actions had testified to a false gospel. And I had only participated in deceiving people. And I confessed my sin to God and he forgave me on the basis of what his son Jesus did on the cross for me. Now you may have never attended the worship service of a false religion. You may have never worshipped at the feet of a false god in such an overt way as I did that day. But there are more subtle ways in which we can fall unknowingly into the worship of demons. The culture that we live in is saturated with competing gods to the one true God. It's full of false lords. So we need to be sober-minded every time we set foot outside our doors, every time we turn on the television, every time we want to go out with unbelieving friends, or even believers who are not quite so committed to maintaining their exclusive worship of Christ alone to the exclusion of all others. Despite our good intentions and in participating in these things, we need to ask ourselves, what is being celebrated in this activity that I'm looking to take part in? What message am I sending by my participation? And this passage that we're looking at this morning is going to show us why it's so important for us to be sober-minded, to think before we act. We have only one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must take great care that we don't begin offering our services or offering our worship to another master in addition to our Lord. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings. In the first heading we find in verse 14, and in that verse we're instructed this, do not play with idolatry. Don't fool around with it. Don't fiddle with it. Don't play with idolatry. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't mess around with it. Run from it. And all that Paul has written from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through chapter 10, verse 13, has led up to this command, flee idolatry. In chapter 1, verses, 8, or verses 1 through 13, Paul showed the Corinthians their responsibility to help their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ to persevere in the faith, to be careful to not stumble them. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 23, 
Paul showed these believers their responsibility to deny themselves for the sake of the weaker brother in the faith. Not only that, but for the sake of the lost who were watching them, observing them. And then we saw in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 9, our need for perseverance in the faith. Perseverance in the faith. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, Paul showed us the consequences of failing to persevere in the faith. And the occasion for all that Paul has been writing in chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 has been the Corinthians fooling around with idolatry, being willing and maybe actually participating in sacrificial meals that were taking place in pagan temples. That is the occasion upon which Paul is giving this three-chapter-long discourse that's all been leading up to this point, flee idolatry. In, our, in the home that we stay in, on the first floor, there's a carbon monoxide detector there. And if that thing goes off, what would you expect me as a husband and a father to do? Would you expect me to just keep sitting on the couch, reading a book, No, you'd expect me to gather up my family and leave the house to get out into the fresh air. And if it went off and my wife asked me, should we be worried about that? You wouldn't expect me to say, no, we'll be okay. Don't need to worry. No, when there's a poisonous gas building up in your house, you flee. You don't stick around to see what happens. You don't say, I'll be all right. Well, the Corinthians are sticking around to poisonous gas. They're not fleeing. They've been dilly-dallying with idolatry, and so Paul commands them to flee the poisonous gas of idolatry. It doesn't do any good to hang around the area where that's taking place. He tells them to run. And what has been their strategy in dealing with idolatry thus far? What have we seen in in these chapters? Well, in chapter 8, verse 4, we saw there that they were aware of the truth that an idol is nothing and that there's actually only one God. They knew that was true, and Paul affirmed that that was true. But when we got down in chapter 8 to verse 10, we found that Paul was warning these believers of the consequences of dining in idol temples. So the truth that they affirmed up in verse 4 was being used by them to justify their continuing to partake in idol feasts, pagan temples. And we can infer that they were wrongly applying this knowledge that an idol is nothing and that there's only one God. It was right knowledge, but it was wrongly applied. They seemed to think that there was no danger in dining in idol temples, or at least no danger to them. They were knowledgeable. They knew better. They thought that it wouldn't be sin for them. They were strong enough to handle it. They felt they could play with fire and not get burned. And this is a movie that we've seen before with these believers. If you turn back to chapter 6, where Paul was confronting them about sexual immorality, we saw in this chapter how these believers seem to have taken a principle of Christian liberty. And in verse 12, we find what that principle was. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. And they applied that principle, apparently, to sexual immorality. 
It was a right truth, but it was wrongly applied. It seemed to have led them to the conclusion that such behavior is not harmful. All things are lawful for me, including sexual immorality. And so Paul, in verse 18 of chapter 6, look at what he says there. What does he command them in chapter 6, verse 18? Flee. Flee sexual immorality. And it's the same thing here in chapter 10. They know a truth, but they're wrongly applying that truth in such a way that it's leading them to mess around with sin. And Paul is saying, no, you've got to run from this. You don't mess around with it. Paul says, you're not safe. Flee. You and I need to flee idolatry. Every society has its gods that compete for our worship of the one true God. Even atheistic societies have their own gods. They say they don't believe in God, but all you have to do is look at the communist nations who make you take down the cross and hang a picture of who? That totalitarian leader on the wall. They are the gods. Every nation has competing gods. And in our nation, it's the same. There's a plethora of gods. There are the gods of pagan religions such as Islam, Buddhism, the New Age. There's gods of cults such as Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and on and on it goes. There are the gods of celebrity, gods of pleasure, gods of materialism, and the great god of self. Just like the Corinthians, we are surrounded by opportunities to participate in the worship of these gods, which are not really gods. But we must not participate. We must flee. We must flee. And these next two points that we'll go through will help us in recognizing the idols around us and help us to know what this fleeing looks like. And this brings us to our second heading, which we'll see in verses 15 to 18. The first was, don't play with idolatry. The next one is, do not pull the wool over your eyes. Don't deceive yourselves. Look at verse 15. Paul says, I speak as to prudent people. You judge what I say. He's encouraging them to think rightly. He's encouraging them to recognize the truth of what he's been saying. And he's made it, over the course of these three chapters, as clear as day. And he'll make it even clearer in the next three verses of why they should abandon any thought of dining in idol temples. He wants these believers to exercise discernment, to think soberly and sensibly, and to be clear-headed. And it's not that they don't have the capacity to do this. We saw back in chapter 1 that God had gifted them with knowledge. When Paul says, I speak as to prudent people, he's not mocking them. They have everything they need to make right decisions. They just have not been exercising godly wisdom, and God, or Paul calls them to exercise that godly wisdom now. And this is a challenge that every believer needs. Each one of us needs to be challenged to think, to discern, to judge the facts in the light of God's word. You and I too often are content to pull the wool over our own eyes, to check our brains at the door, to avoid reckoning with the sinfulness of a thing because we like doing the thing too much. 
And if we were to come to the understanding that, hey, this is wrong, that would mean I have to get it out of my life. But I want it in my life, and so I'm not going to think about the fact that it's wrong. And so we just, I'm just not going to think about that. We check our brains at the door. We don't like to consider whether or not it's wrong, whether or not it's helping my brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not God is honored with this because I love it too much. And Paul is saying to these Corinthians, carefully evaluate what I'm about to say. And in the light of what I've said and in the light of what I'm about to say, he's telling them, judge for yourselves whether or not it is permissible for you to eat in pagan temples with unbelievers. So this is what he's, he's going to give them another argument for them to judge for themselves. And he's going to do it by asking some questions. And the first two questions he asks is in verse 16. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? What's Paul talking about there? Communion, yes, the Lord's Supper. He's asking them to consider what they do on the Lord's Day together, to think about the implications of what they do. When you drink the cup that speaks of the blood of Christ shed for you, and when you eat the broken bread that speaks of the body of Christ that was broken for you, what is happening when you are eating that? Are you not fellowshipping with Christ? Are you not by faith benefiting from what Jesus did in allowing his blood to be shed and allowing his body to be broken on the cross for you and I? In other words, when, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, are we just having a mid-morning snack together? Are we just sitting down to lunch and having a good time? No. Worship is happening. Communion with our Lord is happening. It's a meal in the context of worship, and so that meal becomes an act of worship. That's what's happening. And you see, Paul is wanting them to draw a line from the Lord's Supper to what they're doing in pagan temples. And he's saying, this is what's happening in the Lord's Supper. What do you think is happening when you sit down to a meal in a pagan temple? That's what he's wanting them to conclude, to think about. He wants them to see that when they were sitting down in a pagan temple, and when they were eating of the sacrifice that was offered to the pagan god, they were partaking of that meal in the context of pagan worship. And because the meal was being eaten in the context of pagan worship, they weren't just eating lunch. It was not just a business meeting. It was not just a birthday celebration. Worship was happening. They were communing with a pagan god. It doesn't matter that that's not what their intention was. Paul is saying that's what is happening. Paul is saying think. Think about this. He wants them to consider something else in verse 17. He says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. During the Lord's Supper, that you and the other believers in the church are eating on the Lord's Day, Paul is asking these believers, when each of you is eating from the same loaf of broken bread, do you think that there's no connection between you and the other person next to you eating from that same loaf? No, of course they don't think that. They know there's a connection. They know that this act of eating from this same loaf 
is something they are doing in solidarity together. They're all worshiping and communing with the same Lord. They're all part of the one body of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we partake of communion, we are united with one another because we're all dependent upon the same Lord whose broken body is represented in that broken bread. And again, what conclusion does Paul want the Corinthians to draw in having them think about this reality of communion? What does he want them to conclude? That when they sit down at the table in the pagan temple, and they and the unbelievers sitting next to them are all eating from the same sacrifice that was offered to that pagan god, they are being united to those unbelievers in their pagan worship of that pagan god. That is what is happening. And no amount of theological rationalizing can negate that that is what is happening. In verse 18, Paul asks them another question. And here he kind of combines those two thoughts, communing with the Lord and communing with one another. He kind of combines those two thoughts into this one thought that he brings up in verse 18. He says there, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In the Old Testament, when an animal was slaughtered and part of its body was burned upon the altar, what was happening? Worship was happening. And both the priest who placed that animal on the altar and the person from the congregation of the people who had brought that animal, both of them ate of the remains of that animal together. They both feasted. Both the priest and the offerer were complicit in that act of worship that took place upon the altar. And Paul is showing here that feasting was bound up in the worship. And it's the same thing in the Lord's Supper. And it was the same thing in these pagan sacrificial feasts. Because the feasting was done in the context of worship, that feasting became an essential component of that worship. And that is what the Corinthians were overlooking. The Corinthians did not think that their eating in pagan temples constituted the worship of that pagan god. And they had applied certain truths, that the idol's nothing and there's only one god, they had applied that truth in such a way to arrive at that conclusion that they were okay to eat that meal. You know, this, this god that the meal was sacrificed to, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's not going to hurt me. It's not a real God. So I can do this. I can take part in this. But Paul is showing them, no, you're worshiping. I know what you know to be true, but by your very actions and your, your joining with these unbelievers, you are worshiping. They didn't think that dining in a pagan temple would be a betrayal of Jesus Christ, the one who had shed his blood for them, the one whose body had been broken for them, the one who had entered into an exclusive covenant with them, a covenant that they affirmed every single time they partook of the Lord's Supper. And Paul was telling them, no, dining in idol temples is a betrayal of Christ. And I really struggled to know how to take what Paul is saying here and to apply it to us today. Because there's not a pagan temple down the road for us to go walk down the street to. But we can commit the same error 
even here in New Woodstock, where this is the only standing house of worship, we can still commit the same error. If there is something wrong that we really want to keep doing, we can come up with all sorts of rationalizations in order to try and insulate ourselves from the sin that is involved in partaking of that thing we love to do. And we can convince ourselves that it's really okay for me to continue doing this thing that I love because, after all, I'm not really sinning. I think to myself, I'm not really betraying Christ when I do this. I'm not betraying him when I go into that movie theater to watch that particular movie. Or I'm not, because of truths that I know, even though my friends are sinning when they do this thing, I know I'm not because my heart's right. I have a different intention than what they do. And I don't want to give specific lists which may make this easier to understand because I'm afraid that in giving you a list I would either go too far or I wouldn't go far enough. Paul is writing to prudent people. And you and I, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have the mind of Christ through the word of Christ. We are prudent people. And we have everything we need to come to right conclusions about questionable situations in our lives. There's things that our consciences get bothered about. And there's times when we just kind of shove that down because I like to do this thing too much. But we need to not shove it down. We need to bring it up and set it before the light of the Word of God and see, is this appropriate for me, a worshiper of Christ, or not? Our society has its gods that it worships. And if there's something that's troubling your conscience even now, ask yourself, is the activity that you're participating in, is it putting you into communion with those gods? Gods of pleasure, gods of self, gods of materialism, and even the more obvious gods. Is this activity, whatever it may be, is it putting you into communion with the unbelievers around you such that you are getting sucked into their worship of their false gods? And to ask more practical questions, Does this activity, does it square with loving your neighbor? Does it square with loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? This activity that your conscience might bother you about, does it hinder your running of the race of faith? Does this activity threaten your exclusive commitment to Christ? This thing that you do, does it seem to quench your love for Christ? Does it deaden your love for Christ? Christ? Does this activity obscure your view of Christ? Does it get in the way of your obedience to Christ? Does it hinder your witness for Christ? This thing, does it disrupt your communion with Christ and with his people? If there's anything in our lives to which we apply these questions, and the answer is yes, Yes, it saps my love for Christ. Yes, it gets in the way of me getting together with my fellow believers and worshiping Christ. Yes, it kind of hurts my witness for Christ. Then it's an idol. And it's something to be fled from. It's not something to be played around with. And we need to not pull the wool over our eyes about it. 
Because our master is Christ. It's not that thing we love to do. Is that not what Jesus got at with the rich young ruler? Remember, he came and he said, Lord, I've done all the commandments. How do I get eternal life? And Jesus said, you know, you know the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, yeah, I'm checking off all those boxes. What left do I have to do? And what did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? He said, sell all that you have. Now, is owning possessions sin? No. But his possessions were an idol in this man's life. And Jesus was saying, will you choose me over your wealth? And the answer was no. And so Jesus was saying, then sell what you have and then come and follow me. He's saying, don't put anything before me. Verse 19, well, excuse me, that brings us to our third heading there in verses 19 to 20. And it's this, do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Look at verse 19. Paul asks, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Paul here, he needs to make a clarification. From the questions that he was asking in verses 16 through 18, the Corinthians, they may have gotten the impression that Paul thought that the gods that were being worshipped in pagan temples were real gods. And Paul assures them, no, that's not the case. That's not what he's saying. And he's already acknowledged that back in chapter 8. There's only one God, and idols are nothing. That is, what the idol represents is not real. An idol of Zeus doesn't mean there's a real Zeus out there. There's no goddess Athena or Aphrodite hiding behind the idols of Athena and Aphrodite. There's no deity standing behind that block of wood or that statue of stone or that mold of silver or gold. There's only one God, the Father. There's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's no other. But what Paul is saying is that there is an evil behind those idols. There are dark, unseen creatures who are seeking to devour men. There is a devil and his demons who are deceiving men into believing in those false gods. And these demons are the recipients of the worship that is going on in those pagan temples. And Paul says in verse 20, he lays that out for us. He says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we become a sharer in what Christ has done for us. We commune with Christ. When the Corinthians were dining in those pagan temples, they were becoming communers with demons without even knowing about it. When you and I participate in the worship of false gods, even though we may be thinking that nothing bad is happening, there is something bad happening. We are communing, fellowshipping with demons. And such a thing is not acceptable for the believer. This is what Paul gets at in verses 21 to 22. And it's not just that it's not acceptable, it's impossible. You cannot be a sharer with Christ 
and a sharer with demons at the same time. Look at what he says in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So it's not possible to worship the Lord Jesus and to worship demons at the same time. Why not? What was our call to worship? It was Matthew 6. Do you remember what Jesus said in verse 24? He says, no one can serve, what? Two masters. Why not? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters because at some point along the way, the command of one master is going to be opposite to the command of the other master, and you have to pick which master you're going to obey. And the one you obey is the one you love, the one you're devoted to, and the one who you disobey, that's the one you hate. That's the one you reject. You can't serve two masters at the same time. And that's what happens when we face a fork in the road and Jesus says, follow me, but this thing we really love doing says, no, no, follow me. We pick one or the other. We can't pick both. That's what Paul is pointing out here. You cannot serve God and demons. Jesus Christ is the one true Lord, and he will not tolerate us serving another Lord alongside himself. Why will he not tolerate that? Because he is the Lord being mentioned in verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Remember earlier in chapter 10, who were they testing in the wilderness? It was Christ. Christ was there. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Jesus will not tolerate us serving another Lord alongside himself because he alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our devotion. No one else is worthy of that. Not only that, but Jesus will not tolerate us playing around with idols because he loves us. And his love relationship with us is a totally exclusive relationship. Just as a man who loves his wife will not tolerate his wife giving herself to another man. So the Lord Jesus Christ will not tolerate his bride giving herself to Satan. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 2. Listen to what Paul says to these believers in this second letter to them. <clears throat> he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. That's Christ. I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul is writing like a father to his daughter. And he's saying, I have found the very best of men for you to marry. 
But I am disturbed that you are starting to have eyes for a cruel deceiver who I know will ruin you. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul is warning these believers that if they persist in participating in these pagan feasts, they will provoke the Lord Jesus to jealousy. And the result has already been outlined for us in verses 7 through 10. What does the result of provoking the Lord to jealousy look like? Well, it looks like the dead bodies of Israel being scattered throughout the wilderness. Those Israelites were not stronger than the Lord, and neither are these Corinthians, and neither are you and I today. Listen, Satan is just fine with us trying to serve one Lord and him, because he knows that if I'm trying to follow the Lord and I'm trying to follow something else, Satan knows that really I'm just following him. So he's fine with that, because he desires our ruin. Jesus desires our salvation, and Jesus knows that only he can save us. We have no other Savior. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Our Lord desires that his bride trust in him alone, fears him alone, loves him above all others, worships him to the exclusion of all others because Jesus knows that his arms are the only arms strong enough and gracious enough to save his bride. Nobody else will be able to save his bride. Do you and I know that? If we know that, then why would we seek satisfaction anywhere else? Why would we trade the Lord of glory the God of all grace, the Holy One, righteous, undefiled. Why would we trade him for broken cisterns, things that cannot satisfy? Why would we love those things more than the Lord Jesus? Let's not provoke the Lord to jealousy over something so worthless. Jesus alone deserves our exclusive worship. So let's abandon all other things that we are putting our hope in, and let's put our hope in Christ alone. Let's pray.